Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Hello, everyone, to, to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. This continues to be a stressful time, but I'm happy to report some good news. Um, University of Connecticut, as one example, will be trying out test optional for three cycles, beginning with the entering class of 2021. So for those of you who've been having trouble getting any testing done, you know there are some solutions out there. That said, I do wanna be clear that we would still advise you to plan to take the SAT or ACT if you haven't yet, as you may be applying to a college that requires it. In fact, my second guest, Megan Steubendeck from Arbor Bridge, a test prep company, will be joining me today to give advice for juniors given all the changes due to COVID-19. For my third segment, I'll be talking with my colleague, Alex Bickford, about funding and online education, which is also very relevant to our current situation. But first, I'm very excited to have as my guest, Rick Bischoff, who's been patiently waiting on camera. Um, Rick is the Vice President for Enrollment Management at Case Western Reserve University in a beautiful spot in Cleveland, Ohio. Also, always like to make sure people know that. I don't know that yeah. Cleveland has the best reputation, but the fact is there are beautiful parts of it, and that is where Case Western is. Um, Rick is also a former colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, and he's joining us to talk about applying to computer science programs and how that differs um, from other majors. So Rick, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, very happy, very happy to be here with you, Sally. <laughs> All right, so it's computer science is a pretty complicated, I mean, let's start off by saying that I only worked at small liberal arts colleges that didn't have computer <laughs> science. So um, although actually University of Chicago did, um, but there's a lot of confusion. I mean, I really, it was really something that I had to learn about and I know that a lot of people have confusion. I mean, we have, I talk to students who say I want to do computer science because they like playing video games. I talk to students who, on the other hand, are really, really good at math. They like to program. So when they say they want to do computer science, I'm a little more optimistic about it. But I was hoping that you could maybe address some of sort of the differences with a student applying to a computer science program versus a student, say, applying to be a math major or English or history or whatever that might be. Well, I, th I think the first thing is for students to understand kind of what it is and, and, and what they're getting into. As you say, uh, you like to play video games does not mean you should be a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people often think of coding. Yes, coding is a piece of it, uh, but you're going to you're going to study things that are much bigger than just coding data structures and kind of a whole host of things that will lead you to an incredible variety of, of careers. Um, you know, in looking at computer science programs, uh, you know, the first thing that students should understand is that computer science programs are incredibly competitive uh, for admission. I mean, it is, you know, incredibly competitive because all of us, even the liberal arts colleges with, with computer science programs, you know, have an abundance of applicants because lots of students want to go into computer science. And so making sure that you have, you know, some previous experience, maybe you've taken a computer science class in high school. So, so we can read your application and say, okay, you've got some idea of what you're doing and this is something you like and you want to spend more time doing. But then, you know, realizing that you're going into a very, very competitive applicant pool and you need to plan appropriately with your college counselor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, actually, I even have... Um... I have people who kind of are always sort of trying to find a backdoor way in, like they say, well, I know that computer science is much tougher to get into, so I'm going to apply into math, and then I can transfer in. And then my response is, you really might not be able to transfer in. So I was hoping you could address that at case. Yeah, that, that's, a, that, that's a strategy I've, I've never quite understood. I'm going to tell them I'm going to study something else and hope that I can do the thing that I really want to do rather than choose a college where I know I can do what I want to do from the beginning. That, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense to me. 
Um, there are many institutions where, you know, if you're not admitted as a first year student to computer science, you can never transfer in. Even those that have uh, the ability to transfer, those transfer slots may be incredibly, incredibly limited. And so if you really want to do computer science, you need to be applying to schools where you're going to be competitive for admission in computer science and not trying to come through some back door that may, may, may never open for you. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about it being more competitive, let's, let's kind of dig into what that means. Um, like how much more competitive at a school like Case Western compared to someone who do, is applying, is thinking about math, like how much more competitive would computer science be if that yeah. student chose that instead? I mean, my my advice to students would be, you know, typically look at at a a university's academic profile. And if you're looking at something like computer science, you should probably be in the top quarter of that academic profile, you know, to to then think that, okay, I I may really have a chance there. You know, if you're at the middle of that school's profile uh, academically, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage from day one walking in. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, test optional at the top of the uh, top of the hour. Uh, you know, normally I would say, you know, look look at testing profiles, look at uh, you know, look look at you know if they publish average GPAs, curriculum recommendations, things like that. It's going to be harder, you know, as we move forward over the next couple of years, as more and more institutions, ourselves included have moved to test optional because of the testing disruptions. It's going to, it's going to make the landscape harder for students to understand, but they still need to be performing. You know, that th- their, their curriculum needs to be more challenging than the average applicant to that university. You know, their grades need to be, you know, stronger, you know, than other applicants applying to that university. Cause that, that's what they're competing with. Right. So, and I'm assuming like, I mean, I'm sure you don't have hard and fast rules, but like ideally a student has AP calculus and maybe for some reason they weren't able to be that advanced in math. So then maybe it's honors pre-calculus, like that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, and it, of course, it, it depends on the, the college or university that you're applying to and their, le- right. their level of selectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at a university where most of the folks coming in to the university or most of the students coming into any of the STEM fields are going to have calculus, yeah, you're probably going to need to be in calculus in order to be competitive. You, you touch on uh, one of the things that I always find puzzling. You know, I'll, I'll have students say, oh, gee, I want to do computer science. And then I start asking them questions about their math preparation. And their answer is, oh, I don't really like math. Um, yeah, you got to take some math. Uh, you got to take less math if you're going to do a Bachelor of Arts in Computer Science. You got to take a lot of math if you're going to do a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you want to like math if you're going to do Computer Science. There are lots of things that you learn in math in terms of the way it wires your brain that are very constructive uh, as a Computer Science major. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I mean, I've had conversations with families about them, and some of them end up being very upset with me when I talk about how important <laughs> math is. They're really not happy about it, and I've tried to explain that math is, pro- is, I think, is probably the most predictive as far as a student's level of yeah. success because computer science pro uh, classes at the high school level tend to be easier than the math classes, but they're using similar thought processes, right? I mean, am I wrong about that? Please feel yeah. free to correct me. No, I, I don't think you're you're wrong about it. I mean, it's the, you know, I'll confess I was an undergraduate math major. Um, I have forgotten most of the math that I learned 30 plus years ago. Uh, but what I've retained is the kind of lo- logical structured thinking uh, that you learn in math. And, you know, that's computer science. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, training your, your mind in that way uh, is going to be very good in computer science, and people who are going to be very good in computer science are probably going to find those same skills rewarded in their math courses. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, for, for high school students, you know, d- don't give up on the math. You know, keep taking the math courses. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, we we see all kinds of things where students may come into a new high school and they're uh, in ninth grade, and their previous school didn't put them on a math track to end you know, in BC calculus, well, that's okay. 
Right. Um, you know, we, we, we see that, but you want to keep pushing along at the appropriate level. Mm-hmm. And take, I mean, really take the most advanced math classes that you can handle. Yes. Um, I mean, without a doubt, even, and, and this comes up a lot too, even if you're risking a B, I mean, at least I would oh. think for a school like Case, if you're not in the at least honors pre-calculus, then you're probably not going to be competitive, right? There are schools where you still will be. I mean, we, we see it all the time. Uh, if you're applying to competitive STEM programs and we, we see students who they're, you know, in pre-calculus their junior year, uh, the next logical math course would be maybe a calculus course or a Calc AB class, and instead they opt for an AP stats. Mm-hmm. And that's really tough mm-hmm. uh, because not only are they missing a year of you know math in high school, um, but now they're going to come in as a first-year student, expect to take a calculus course, and they've been away from the kind of math that prepares them for calculus for 16 months. That's a huge deficit to start with. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we look at that from a competitiveness perspective, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to opt for that student who, who chose to stay on the calculus route and heaven forbid, even if they get a B, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be in a much, much better position. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm glad to hear all my advice has been correct so far. <laughs> so you're glad to that, hear. Hey, it's shocking to me too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a minute. We're having a conversation after the show. Um, all right. So I was hoping too, we have a little time. So I was wondering if we could pivot to the difference between like a bachelor of arts in computer science within the college of arts and sciences compared to the bachelor of science in computer science within the college of engineering. I think that's confusing to a lot of students. Yeah, and, and you'll, different universities will have different structures. So some might have both a BS and a BA in a College of Arts and Sciences. You know, we're a place that actually teaches the BA and the BS in, we teach it in the School of en- Engineering. Okay. Um, but so primarily what you're going to see, the, the BA is going to require you to take fewer computer science courses typically and fewer. STEM courses outside directly of computer science. And so the BA is a degree that is really appealing for students who uh, have another interest. You know, I want to do political science and computer science. I want to do computer science, but I also want to major in business uh, because you have the room and the flexibility to Mm -hmm. tie those things together. If you're doing a BS in computer science and you're right, most typically, it is going to be um, housed in the computer science, uh, I'm sorry, in the engineering school. And that may mean that you're taking the same engineering core that every other engineer is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, in our case, you know, if you're going to do a BA in computer science, you're going to do two semesters um, of calculus as a requirement for that. If you're going to do the, the BS in computer science, you're going to do four. Uh, and you're going to do, you know, chemistry, physics, you're going to do a whole host of courses. Um, so you're, I mean, it's going to be an in-depth, very rigorous, quantitative, broad-based science approach with computer science on top. Um, and probably half in a BS program, probably half of your courses are going to be in computer science. Mm-hmm. All right. So very, very sort of different structure. Um, yeah, and- yes. I like the way you describe this. Like I'm I'm actually working with a student right now who likes computer science but also likes business. And so for her, yeah. clearly I think it's the BA is what she's oh, actually absolutely. wanting to do. Yes, yeah, so. a- absolutely. And, and there's nothing wrong with the BA. You know, if, if you want a career in computer science, you can do a BA and go on and have a comp- have a career you know, in, in computer science, uh, you can go on if you decide you want to do a master's degree, you know, in computer science or some related field, you're going to have the preparation to do that. Um, but it's it, the BS, you know, you're all in on computer science and to, to do a BS in computer science, you know, and a business major in four years, uh, <laughs> you'd have to be very special. Yes. In order to do that. <laughs> yeah. And like really not have fun in college, I think. Uh, no. <laughs> no. So, like, I mean, for, for some students, the BA really is the best route. And that's a conversation when I'm talking with a student. You know, when I'm trying to figure out where to direct them, I'm not talking to them about their computer science interest. I'm talking to them about 
what else do you want to get out of college? You know, and some students will say, all I want to do is this one thing. And you're like, okay, have I got a program for you? But for the student who says, oh, but I like sociology and I want to take some English classes. And what about political science and maybe some uh, business classes? You're like, oh, okay, do a BA because then you can still do all of those other things you love to do. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. And so we only have like um, one minute left, but basically students, if they want to find out which one they should do, you've given them a general rule of thumb, but they should talk to their admission officer, it sounds yeah. like. And that admission officer can guide them in the right direction. Well, and, and look at, you know, it, it's not hard to do, go and look at the requirements for each degree. And because they're going to lay out exactly what you need to do. And there are plenty of students who come in saying, I want to do computer science. And they look at what's required for the BS and they're like, oh, not for me. (laughs) And others who look at that and say, oh, my God, that looks like so much fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, you know what you should do. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Listen, Rick, thank you so much. That was extremely helpful. All right. Very good to see you, Sally. Nice to see you, too. All right. Take care. All right, so now we're going to take a short break, but when we return, I'll be talking with Megan Stubendeck about the current state of standardized testing. You can actually see her picture below if you're, if you're uh, watching the actual recording of this. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, we'll, we'll now be talking to Megan Stubendeck of Arbor Bridge Test Prep. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me, Sally. Thanks so much for being on here. This is a super stressful time for uh, everyone. Um, but let's right now we're going to focus on high school juniors. If we have time, we'll get to the sophomores and just kind of generally like how to take tests. I mean, I've talked to so many families who said, well, maybe we just won't bother. We hear that all the colleges are going testing optional. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) A lot of them are, but we don't know. And even like, I remember reading the text of Cornell's announcement that they're going to be test optional. They're like, basically, but they still said, but if you can test, we expect you to test. So they're giving it out for students in tough circumstances. But so why don't we, why don't we go ahead and dig into that? Like what's canceled? Like what's going on? What's the kind of general state of affairs? Yeah. So you've really hit the nail on the head. It is all over the place. um, And it's also constantly changing. You know, Cornell came out with a new announcement, but other ones are saying other things. And it is a pretty complicated thing. So starting from where the current state of testing is, is sort of looking back at all of 2020. So basically SAT has canceled all tests until August. And then starting in August, there'll be an SAT every single month until December. So that meant that they actually ended up adding a test date in September that's never existed before. So you have one shot every single month in the fall. Now, when it comes to ACT, ACT was a little bit more 
uh, cavalier about it. And what they decided to do was let's keep June and see if we can do June. Um, and they've actually kept all of their test dates from June forward. So June is still a little bit uh, iffy, um, and we're going to know the last week of May, ACT is going to start making final decisions about individual test centers, whether or not they're going to be able to actually administer the test or not. Uh, and then they start then their summer testing in July, and we'll probably see more likelihood that ACT July is going to happen than, say, the June. Um, okay. And that's SAT, ACT, but subject tests, uh, if you have to take an SAT subject test, those start back up in August on the regular schedule. Okay. And those, I mean, that's where I've actually seen more aggressively schools really going away from that. Like schools where it was recommended, it is now truly, truly optional. Like even in their phrasing, they're, they're saying really it's optional. It truly is optional. Whereas like in the past, if you wanted to apply to UPenn, I said, you need to take SAT subject tests unless basically you're first generation, maybe didn't even know about SAT subject tests. Right. But if you're a typical student from a you know good suburban high school or good high school period, the expectation is going to be that you took it. Um, what are you seeing as far as that goes? You're exactly right about that. It's the subject tests have really taken the biggest hit in all of this because they've always been sort of not the central part of testing, they've been an important part, but the central part is really SAT, ACT for the colleges. And so what they really decide is like, you know what, Col the colleges are like, okay, we know that there's limited testing dates. We'd rather you focus on SAT, ACT don't bother with subject tests this year. We'll figure that out later. Um, but you were right when you sort of mentioned earlier that even though that the schools that are saying, oh, we're test optional, that's actually not the case for SAT, ACT. It's a whole different ballgame for those two big pillar exams. Um, you sort of mentioned that the topic of Cornell is you really do have to read the fine print. Uh, all the media was talking about, oh, Cornell is test optional. Everyone's going test optional. But when you really dig into what the colleges are saying, there's a couple of areas that um, we've been seeing where colleges still want you to test. One of them, like you said, like Cornell's, if you have access, you should be testing. Um, another is scholarships. Some scholarship programs, course placement thing, uh, requirements or um, certain programs are still going to require, even though overall for admissions, they might be test optional. They haven't yet dropped always um, the score needs for those other things. Um, and the other one, I'm sure, Sally, you probably come across this. Even before this, test optional was a topic and many schools had gone test optional. But sort of the meaning of test optional isn't that they don't look at scores. They will still look at scores if you send them. Mm -hmm. They just don't require that you have them for admission. So there are kids for whom not only do they kind of want to see a score because you have access or you don't face economic hardship, but some kids actually can be helped by having a good score on the SAT or ACT. So, you know, it maybe helps balance out a weak GPA. Sophomore year was really terrible for you something, and you need something to sort of, you know, boost what you look like as a student. Mm -hmm. It could actually help you too. So it is important to sort of think about all of those different ways in which testing may or may not be something you might need to do. Yeah. I mean, yesterday I talked to a young woman who was only planning on applying to the UCs and the Cal States. And mm -hmm. based on her PSAT, she was not a good tester at all. So in her case, she, that was sort of the first student where I said, okay, yeah, you probably don't need to bother. Like if you're sure that you're only applying to UCs or Cal States, then you probably don't need to bother. For literally every other student, I've said, you should have this as a backup plan. And then if you don't get the test you need, use test optional as a plan B. Is that sort of what you're advising your students on? We are. And it's that you really sort of point out the, the sort of weird loophole there is there's really few students who every school on their list has gone test optional. There's usually like one holdout. NYU is still holding out. Dartmouth has said, if testing is available by October, we expect you to take it. So mm -hmm. there are schools out there and your chances that you are free and clear on every school on your list is probably going to be pretty slim. So it is um, important to really know what your list is and be constantly looking at those schools' websites to see what their current policies are. Because as you mentioned, they there's a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of stuff changing over the, and going to be changing over the next couple of months. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell students, you got, you have to go on the website all the time. Mm -hmm. They have COVID announcement banners going. I mean, I don't even know. I'm like, look, I heard a week ago, this school, you know, university of Connecticut, I just heard, you know, um, cause I live in Connecticut, but I, I can't keep track. And this is what I do all day long. <laughs> so, you know, you have to really narrow down your list and then really do the research. So um, so there has been talk, too, about the SAT and ACT going online. And um, what what would that look like? I mean, I admit, 
you know, people are like, well, how's that even going to work? And, and I'm like, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know. So really hoping you can help with that. Uh, I wish I could. No, um, I, I have a little bit to say about it, but um, I'm kind of in the same boat you are. And I've been doing this for almost two decades now. It's going to be a really interesting experiment in a lot of ways, because even when they said it, I was shocked that they even thought they could do it because there's just it's a Herculean task. There's just a lot that they have to pull together. There's test security. There's kids taking it in different time zones. There's server issues. There's proctoring questions. There's, you've got to convince the colleges that these scores are valid, that they'll even take them. I mean, Mm. there's just so much involved here. So um, what we do know for sure is that the the SAT and ACT said at the earliest, this won't be available till late, late fall or early winter. So we know that it's mm-hmm. not going to happen this summer. We know that it's not going to be sort of that September, October. So I don't think it will really affect students who are current ju- uh, juniors. So class of 2021, that probably will not be ready for them, but it could mm-hmm. affect sophomores and younger students as they sort of come through this process. Um, the other thing that we sort of are thinking about, and people are always asking when they're like, how does this even work? Is they're sort of asking two questions. One of them is, okay, if I'm a student and I sit down and I'm taking the test, what am I going to see? What is my experience going to be like? And then the second part is proctoring. How do you proctor millions of kids across the world to make sure that it's a secure test and no one's cheating? So when we talk about what the experience will be like, we actually do have a few hints. And for there, we kind of look to the ACT has done an online digital test internationally for a couple of years. It hasn't been at home. It's always kids go to a test center and they take it on a computer at a test center. But we would imagine that the test that they put out for an online at-home test will look probably pretty similar. So kids log into a computer. The test pops up on the screen. There's a little clock that counts down for you how many minutes you have left in a section. You see a passage on the left side and you see one question at a time on the right side. And it has the question and your answer choices and you click the answer C, let's say, that you think is the right one. And you click an arrow and you go to the next question and it the screen changes and you just, you can go through questions and move ahead. You can skip questions. You can go back uh, until the end of that section. Kids also are allowed to have um, scrap paper and, or a whiteboard to do annotations on the side so that they can still do their math work and all of that. Um, we would imagine it'd be someone similar for SAT or ACT if it was an online at-home exam. Uh, the thing that is sort of not very clear is how they're going to do proctoring. And for this, we have to really look at other tests that have already made this switch to at-home testing to see if maybe there's a hint at what the possibilities might be. So on the most stringent end, you have one-to-one proctor, kind of like we're sitting here. If someone mm-hmm. is on the video watching you, you have your video on the whole time. Uh, oftentimes that proctor also has control of your computer screen and can mm-hmm. watch what you're clicking, where you're moving, what uh, different programs you have open so that they can see all of that. And they track and watch you for the entire length of the test. So the grad school exams have moved in that direction. On the other side is what happened with the AP exams, which is on your honor. We just trust mm. you're not going to cheat. <laughs> um, yeah. And kids took it unproctored. And you can kind of do that with APs because it, they turned it into an entirely essay-based exam and it's a little mm. harder to cheat that way. But that's not going to be an option for SAT or ACT because it's multiple choice. So the last little possibility we see is something that the ACT recently talked about in a webinar um, that I attended. And the CEO said, we're thinking about doing this thing where you take the full test unproctored, and then you have to sign on at a different date for like a 20 minute short exam where the proctor is there and watching you for 20 minutes. And it's same level of difficulty and same types of questions. And what they do is then look to see, can you perform at exactly the same level? And if you can perform at the same level as you did on that unproctored test, they'll say, okay, we trust that you didn't cheat that first test score, that's that's your legitimate school. It's validated. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's another option or way they might go. But honestly, we don't know. We're probably going to wait until I would say, um, we'll probably hear more around the October, September era, um, mm-hmm. area of, the, of 2020 of what it might look like. And though, to be honest, if we see the tests go forward in, in the summer and then in the fall, regular paper-based at schools, they're probably not going to do this. Um, we really would have to see widespread cancellations for a much longer period for them to, to go Yeah, on. I mean, security issues are just enormous um, for this. So, I mean, I used to proctor SATs and actually organize, like put on SATs when I was a high school counselor. So I have a kind of sense of how all this works. And 
you know, getting students to respect time limits as well. Like plenty of students who don't think of themselves as cheaters, they won't necessarily respect the time limits if they don't absolutely, like you're like saying, hand this to me now, or I have to toss yeah. you out, you know, things like that. So it's just, it's just big. It is, um, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I think not everybody knows. I mean, we did, I guess, talk about what test optional is. And I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of schools have been doing it for a while. And so even though we were kind of scary about Cornell, like, I do think it's worth it to emphasize that a lot of schools, when they say test optional, they're just simply test optional. So mm -hmm. just hoping you could comment on that for people. Yeah, and you mentioned that it has been a trend that started even before this whole coronavirus COVID situation um, uh, sort of kicked off in March, is that there has been over the last couple of years, more and more schools saying, you know what, we do want to go test optional. We will take your scores if you have them and you feel like they might help your application. But if you don't, uh, don't have those scores or don't want to send them in, that's fine too. We'll still look at your application and consider you fully um, for admissions at our school. And, um, you know, and many of those in the first sort of category before COVID happened were that sort of, like you said, when they say they're test optional, they are test optional. Um, but you probably could tell, obviously, Sally, too, a little bit more of like, there are some students for whom, like we said, it actually probably is a good idea to not go test optional for you. And for other students, it is a very good idea. Don't go, you know, do go the test optional route. Don't bother with the testing. Um, focus on other things instead of your application. And that's a that's a student to student decision um, in terms of, of what is the best thing for them. But yeah, we've definitely seen an uptick in this um, even before this really kicked off and got started. And I think it's mm -hmm. a good it's a good option. It provides a lot of flexibility for different families, different student needs and, and different school needs as well. Mm -hmm. So what about sophomores? I mean, I, whenever I hear a sophomore took an SAT or ACT, I'm like, why, why, why are you taking it so early? I mean, like, they're like, we want to get it done. I'm like, well, unless you're a really strong tester, you're going to have to keep taking the test mm -hmm. anyway. So, because, you know, you might, you haven't had all the English, even if you're an advanced math student, like, you know, so anyway, how is this going to impact sophomores? And you can kind of let me know if I'm completely off base telling sophomores to stop <laughs> taking the SAT or ACT. You can take the subject tests. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what, what are your thoughts on that? Totally agree. Totally agree on that. Um, you know, it's not your sophomore year. It, you're not far enough along your academics. You're not far enough along in your testing maturity to really get your best possible score. And that's really the goal. It's not about doing it the fastest. It's about doing it the best you possibly can. Um, so what I usually do say is don't test your official test in sophomore year. That's, it's much too early. Um, what we are saying though, that's slightly different this year for sophomores. Um, one of the things that I've been noticing is everybody's really focused on the juniors because obviously they're ready to, they are in the thick of testing and their applications are due, but sophomores are also going to be pretty heavily hit by all of these changes that are happening and everything that's going on academically. And so we are starting to think a lot more about them and what they need. And so what we're noticing is that sort of thinking long-term about sophomores, what the rest of this year is gonna look like for them is summer is gonna be really quiet. There's no camp, there are no jobs. There's, you can't hang out with as many of your friends. There just isn't a lot of activity to do right now in the summertime. And then when junior year starts, as Sally, I'm sure you could tell everyone, junior year is the worst year academically of your life. It is, I've gotten mm -hmm. a PhD and I can tell you I've been through a hundred years of schooling and it is still, I, I remember junior high school year. It's hard. Mm -hmm. um, and it's going to be even more, more difficult than it normally is because a lot of students may have not done as much academics in the spring because we all went to distance learning. All of that was happening too. So mm -hmm. what I can foresee is that summer is going to be quiet and junior year is going to be intense this coming year. So mm -hmm. we're recommending to sophomores is um, we don't want anyone testing in their sophomore year. We don't even really suggest that you go all in and type your SATs or ACTs even in the beginning of your junior year. But what we are recommending is use the quiet time this summer to do at least the early legwork of your testing experience. That would mean mm -hmm. take your diagnostics, pick your test, mm -hmm. you know, shop around for whatever test prep you decide you want to do. What's your plan going to be? Um, and maybe even do some of the foundational work, particularly reading. Reading is the one that takes forever to get better at. So mm -hmm. do a lot of reading. Um, expose yourself to different types of, uh, particularly nonfiction, which show up a lot on these exams. Uh, do that kind of stuff in the summer. Then you can put it away when junior year starts. Focus on your academics. And then when it's time to actually start taking the real test, probably in the spring of your junior year, then you can go all in. Mm -hmm. and start really doing your test prep. But we are seeing that sort of shift 
of people doing more of that work in the summer now instead of waiting until later in the junior year. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as long as they're ready, they're ready, right? Yeah. But yeah, but you, you really don't, <laughs> don't like, don't gun for this spring if you're a sophomore, you know, even Definitely August, not. as you said, is pretty early. So, um, all right, great. Well, Megan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Sally. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. So we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be talking to Alex Bickford about what families need to know about funding and online education. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and welcome, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Sally. Okay, so um, it's a pretty big question right now, how to pay for online education. And I've talked to parents who are frustrated at the notion that they might have to pay full tuition for an online learning circumstance. So I was pretty excited when I heard that you were going to be addressing that. Um, So, I mean, what do you think if campuses do not open this fall, will there be a discount on tuition costs? I think SUNY Binghamton announced something similar, but I haven't been hearing about it otherwise. Right. So there's been, colleges are particularly mum on this topic right now. Uh, There are some colleges who come out and adjusted their model. There are some colleges who come out and said what they're going to do. But the vast majority of colleges have come out and said, well, we're taking a wait and see approach. And, and you know, the reason for that is, is that many of these colleges are dependent on the tuition. Uh, Many of these colleges think it's going to be a financial nightmare if they can't open. So they want to do everything they can uh, Mm -hmm. to get the approval to be in place to have uh, students on campus for the fall. Uh, And some colleges just aren't equipped uh, to deal with online education right now. So they're probably scrambling behind the scenes to get the technology in place uh, to be able to remote uh, and distance learn and distance instruct. Uh, So there's, there's some components of that as well. So the short answer is, It depends. Uh, The long answer will be, uh, I think it's going to be a little bit different at public and private colleges. Mm -hmm. So we've seen some of the colleges in the UC system, for example, who have come out and said, we're charging the same price. Um, And we're charging the same price because we're discounted anyway uh, for in-state residents. We're less expensive to begin with. And of course, you're going to have your room and board cost and you're going to have those types of kind of on-campus activities costs that have gone away. But the rest of your costs um, are probably going to stay the same. They're still having to pay your instructors. They're still having to pay staff. They're going to have to invest more in technology. So they're going to have costs there. The question that I have will be at private colleges, at these private colleges that have really large tuition charges, is there going to be a substantial difference there? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we're waiting to see if there's going to be that one school who's willing to dip their toe in the water and say, well, we're going to do it, uh, a big name school. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and see if other schools follow. But I think there are so many, you know, these small private colleges that are so tuition dependent uh, that they're they're scared of their viability going forward um, mm-hmm. if they can't charge that. So, yeah. So in other words, there's no real answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I. It's interesting because, I I mean, I'm on Facebook. Most people are. And I'm on this group of alumni from my college, Reed College. And this one uh, friend of mine, I think she's great, respect her a lot. Uh, She has two kids in college. So she's paying two tuition bills. So absolutely acknowledge that that is a big tuition bill, both of them in private colleges. And so one of them was in a fairly selective college that may not be fully tuition dependent. But the other one was absolutely like... I'm not going to say the name, but I know for a fact that this school is right on the edge, that they are panicking right now. So she's freaking out that like, you know, I mean, uh, um, I didn't blame her for freaking out, but she was also sort of kind of uh, ascribing negative intentionality as if the colleges were sort of looking to profit from this. And I finally said, listen, I don't blame you for being frustrating. That is a lot of money and you're not getting... what you thought you'd get for it, sure. but be aware it's not going to be great for your kid if X college folds, right. which is honestly what they're worried about right now. I can promise you 100%. So she was like, okay, like, I guess that's the other side of it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, if you want to diss on Harvard, I'm fine with that. They've got billions of dollars. Like, right. I, mean, I mean, you know, we all like to pick on Harvard and the really rich schools, but they can't afford it. That being said, they still had a budget and plans and this has thrown a monkey wrench into everything they're doing as well. So, um, but please know that with these smaller colleges that are tuition dependent, they are freaking out right now. Their jobs are not easier. Their jobs are harder right now. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't get a discount. I, I'm not qualified to weigh in on that, but just know that there's no negative impulses there. It's about really about survival. Right. And yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Sally. There are there are just a, a lot of colleges out there that, uh, you know, in order to meet payroll, need to mm-hmm. get tuition. Uh, and so it's a it's it's a, you know, as it is for any business that's trying to operate uh, and trying to adjust at this time and really just find a way to stay afloat. Colleges are doing the same thing. At least many of them are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what about schools that have already had, I think, pretty robust online programs? I mean, here sure. in Connecticut. You drive down the highway and you see signs for Southern New Hampshire University, which right. I actually think is great. Like, I I think it's wonderful. Like, Arizona State is similar. Some of these schools have these really robust online programs. They also yeah. have the on-campus experience. So they're going to be there for any student, whatever those students' needs are. So, I mean, how how might that be changing? Yes, yeah, so that's really interesting. And I'm not going to try to gush too much about Southern New Hampshire University. I am, uh, I, this is my mm-hmm. former school. I, I worked there for a long time. Uh, and I think what they've done in, in schools like that is really amazing. Actually, um, my wife had a friend over last week, social distancing in the backyard. And I came out and she said, hey, Liv's going to uh, Southern New Hampshire University. And she's really excited about the format they put in place. So what Southern New Hampshire did is, so first of all, they had a very robust online platform to begin with. They were doing, serving schools, uh, I'm sorry, students nationwide with their online platform. So they're fully prepared for this. But what they said was, um, for incoming freshmen, we're going to offer you a deal. The deal is we're going to cut tuition by $10,000. We're going to cut tuition by $10,000. And what you're going to do is you're going to be all four years, you're going to be learning remotely. But you're learning remotely with the opportunity to come live on campus when campus reopens. Mm-hmm. So we're going to serve you in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in what what this student was really excited about is that she has a cohort of students that she's going through this with. They've already built an online community. They're interacting already. So she says, you know, if I'm going to have to be home anyway, uh, and if I'm going to have to learn remotely anyway, let's do this as a team. Let's go in this together. And mm-hmm. then when campus does resume, maybe I'll go on campus, but still have that community that I've been with. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think that schools who, and Leslie University has done this. And as you said, Arizona State uh, is a school that's well, well adapt to do this. So those colleges will offer maybe hybrid models like Southern New Hampshire is doing, uh, offer full online models um, to students who want going forward or offer the option of once again, you can come into our online platform and when we reopen, you can come here as well. So we'll see some variety of options at different colleges there. As far as price goes, um, 
the way I see that working is if it's a hybrid model, they'll probably see an adjusted price. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's all remote, these colleges that serve distant populations as it is right now may have the capability of adjusting pricing to some degree because their technology is built in place. And mm -hmm. many of their instructors are probably used to that technology anyway. Um, so you might have better opportunities of getting, getting adjustment there. Now, one thing I'll say is that that with that price adjustment also comes a financial aid adjustment. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what this mom was telling me is that her, for her daughter, actually, the scholarship that she would have got to go on campus was going to make their costs less expensive than what this hybrid model was. Uh, so it was interesting to hear this. The hybrid model was going to be two or three thousand dollars more expensive because the scholarship wasn't coming into play. Oh, interesting. So it can impact scholarships. Yeah, and it's going to depend on what the colleges do. If the colleges stay full price, my anticipation would be that the financial aid is going to stay the same. They still have their full qualifications for federal aid, full qualifications for state-based aid. Um, it'll be the institutional aid that would be the difference maker there. And I think if the institutions are going to charge full price, uh, their financial aid must be full price as well, and their scholarships must be full price as well. Uh, if they're adjusting their pricing, uh, there is going to be some proportional adjusting of their merit-based aid and their, their internal institutional need-based aid as well, uh, which means that, once again, you're, you might end up saving a few thousand dollars or costing yourself a few thousand dollars, depending on which uh, end of the stick it is. So it's not necessarily going to be this financial savings that you thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it sounds like it will be either the same or a little savings for families that are full price. But when you have the merit or the need-based aid, that's where it gets a lot more complex. That's right. Yeah. So if you're paying full price right now, it'll totally depend on what the school does. And if mm -hmm. they adjust costs and drop costs, certainly you're going to see that savings. But for families who are relying on either scholarships or need-based financial aid to supplement um, what they're able to afford, uh, yeah, you may not see a huge windfall of savings. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering, I mean, is there going to be huge numbers of people putting in appeals right now? I mean, I'm sort yeah. of, uh, you know, what, what do you think, um, you know, how, like, I mean, I, I just have to imagine that financial aid offices are kind of underwater right now trying to figure out what yeah. to do. They are. And, and it's, it's not dissimilar, but in a lot of ways, very dissimilar to what happened in 2008. And so in 2008, when the economy crashed and there was a lots of job losses, colleges took financial aid appeals and decided which way to go with them. And what some colleges decided to do was, well, let's wait until this actually impacts you. Meaning let's wait until your severance runs out if you're getting mm -hmm. severance. Let's wait until we see uh, when unemployment may run out. Uh, and let's see when your financials are adjusted for a year. And then maybe we'll have a conversation. And some colleges said, we'll consider that right away. Colleges now are in this period of saying, we're really hoping things get back to normal pretty quick. And we're really hoping the economy bounces back pretty quick so we don't have to handle these financial aid appeals. So colleges on appeals certainly are hearing them, but they're hearing them for significant income loss only and not for asset reduction. So a lot of folks you know, their college funds have taken a financial hit. Mm -hmm. Colleges likely are not discussing that because their endowments have taken a hit. Uh, so what they're saying is, okay, we may adjust for, for income adjustments, uh, but some colleges are saying, well, let's wait till next semester or next year, and then we'll talk about that, the adjustment. But then we've seen, on the other hand, colleges who, folks who have not even had a big financial hit going back to colleges and saying, hey, you know, we're really needing more money. Uh, mm -hmm. And the college is coming back for more money because they're afraid of losing a student. So it's really a, it's, it's a rocky time for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I'm sympathetic all the way across the board is yeah. what I would say. And I actually have a nephew who's finishing up his junior year and, and, you know, I had thought, well, maybe he should defer for a year. We had sort of talked about that. And now I know that that might impact things too. I mean, there's just, it's so complicated. So I think as I said with the last segment with, um, or as we said with the last segment with the testing, it just seems like they need to keep checking with the colleges, right? Like, like what should people do going forward? If, if colleges are saying we're not making any adjustments now, should they check back on their website in two weeks? Should they call the financial aid office? Yeah. Like what, what's your advice there? 
So there's a couple things that I'd do. So first of all, if you haven't gone back to the colleges and talked about the financials, uh, if you are experiencing financial difficulty, uh, or if you're feeling like if we're going to be on campus and this is going to be our price model that we need more money, you should go ahead and do that. You should check back in with your college. Now, with that being said, when you're trying to check to see, okay, or is my tuition going to be reduced? Okay, is my financial aid going to be different because my tuition is reduced? Or is the tuition going to be the same? Uh, colleges are overwhelmed right now and staff is working remotely. So I would do your best to hold off Let's, let's get on their Twitter page. Let's get on Instagram. Let's make sure we're following them on those social media platforms. Let's check back on their website. Let's do that regularly. Uh, and let's give them a little bit of a breather to try to figure things out. Uh, because as we see in every state across America, it's day by day. Governors mm -hmm. are making different decisions on what's safe and what's not safe. Uh, and then, you know, they're making those decisions in, in quite honestly not knowing whether it is safe or not. So mm -hmm. I think colleges are trying to see, okay, how is this thing going to fall? Because we do have three months here before we have to be on campus. So are there going to be a lot of things that change in three months? We know our world was very different three months ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate your time and thoughts on this incredibly complicated topic. Absolutely, Sally. It was happy, uh, happy to talk to you. So, sorry, Alex, that's supposed to shift to me. Um, so get ready. Thanks so much to everybody for being on our show today. And thank you to all of my guests. Um, get ready for our show on June 4th, um, when our regular host, Elizabeth Heaton, will be answering listener questions and pathways to college if you are a B or C student. Um, and if you want more information about how to handle the admission process in the time of COVID-19, um, please check out our show from March 26 when we address student engagement with colleges and even how to decide on a college when you can't visit. In addition, they had some suggestions for what students can do with their extra time at home. Uh, we've also written some blogs on how to cope with COVID-19's impact on the college admission process. So do make sure to go to our webpage at blog.getintocollege.com. Um, and I've, I've brought these up on, you know, the show before, but I wanted to bring it up again because these are just questions that I keep getting over and over again. Um, and last, I do want to emphasize, if you want to search for a particular getting in show topic, you can search by going to our blog page to find the date as we include a summary of each show there. So again, that address is blog.getintocollege.com. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. So check it out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.